Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. It's great to see so many of you here tonight for what should be a fantastic discussion. My name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology at the LSE, and uh, this is my first time I've been chairing a lecture in this great lecture theatre since COVID, so it's wonderful to be back here. I'm really pleased to be introducing my colleague, Christian Suak, who has a wonderful book out, The Golden Passport, which we'll be discussing tonight. And this will be very much be a panel, four very interesting and, and different speakers to give their reflections on Christian's book, but also the general phenomenon of self-citizenship. And you'll get different perspectives, and it should be a great discussion. So the format will be, so I should say, Kristin is Associate Professor here at the Department of Sociology at the LSE, and this book has been the culmination of many years' painstaking research, and it's going to be a major you know, landmark book, I think the first authoritative book on this phenomenon. So she will talk for about 15, 20 minutes to introduce the key themes. Then after that, we'll have a contribution from the panel. The ordering will be um, Oliver Bulo will go first. Oliver, as many of you will know, is a well-known journalist who's written for The Guardian and The New York Times and GQ. He has a well-known book out called Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, which gives you a flavour of where he's coming from. And um, so he will kick off with some reflections on the distinctiveness and the originality of Christian's book. Then we'll go over to Thomas, Thomas Anthony, who is a former commercial retail and investment banker with 26 years' experience working in the banking and financial securities sectors in Antigua, St. Lucia and Miami. He's former chief executive officer of the Antigua Citizenship by Investment Unit and is now the CEO of the Grenada Citizenship by Investment Unit. So he has a first-hand experience of the phenomenon on the ground as it was and he'll share his thoughts from his experiences of being part of this programme over a number of years. And finally, Jason Sharman is the Sir Patrick Sheehy Professor of International Relations at the, in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge, author of 12 books on offshore wealth management, financial crimes and empire formation. He's worked as a consultant with the World Bank, Asian Development Bank and Financial Action Task Force. So as you can see, a very impressive panel. They'll each speak for about five and ten minutes and pose some reflections on the book, but also some questions to throw out to the audience. Um, Christian will come back and then we might have a discussion amongst us, but we will make sure to leave at least half an hour or so for questions from the floor. So please think about questions you'd like to ask as we're having this discussion. So it should be a great evening. Christian, do you want to start off? Thanks very much, and for the kind introduction, Mike, as well as for this fantastic panel and everybody who's been able to make it here today and the audience as well. It's a huge, huge pleasure to be here today, and it's also, in a way, kind of a relief because it means that I'm not holed up at home trying to write a book, which took forever. When I first started working on this project, which was nearly a decade ago now, I had really no idea at all what I was getting into which turned out to be, in fact, actually one of the best travel excuses ever. I mean, all the countries that sell citizenship, at least most of them at that time, tended to be beautiful tropical islands. You know, you can go to Vanuatu and call it a research expense. And then on top of it, the people who tended to be 
interested in this, we're based in or hubbed in these thriving, amazing global cities. So since 2015, I've been to 16 countries on four continents, talked to over 500 people, and put together a data set to figure out how this global market works, ending up with this, the golden passport. So what is this? What are we, what are we talking about here? So, to be honest, this title, The Golden Passport, wasn't my first choice because there's a significant difference between passports and citizenship. You don't have to be a citizen of a country to have a passport from it. In fact, you know, a lot of diplomatic passports are actually held by non-citizens. And not all citizens of a country have passports, as the vast majority of US citizens know. They don't, or even Chinese citizens, most of them don't have passports. But the golden passport is basically a catchy shorthand for what's also commonly known as citizenship by investment, or the sale of citizenship. Now, I'll also very quickly add that this is not what we're not talking about here are golden visa programs, residence by investment, like you get in Portugal or Spain or the UK or US, um, because it's citizenship and not residence that's on offer. So what we're talking about here, citizenship by investment, are basically government programs that allow people to gain citizenship in recognition of a specified investment, usually in real estate, though there can be other options, or they can make a monetary donation to a country. It's you know usually between 100,000 US dollars or a million US dollars. And you can go to the government website in any of these countries you know, and look up how to do it, which is, in a way, kind of remarkable. Because you know, a country, a sovereign, can grant citizenship to you know, whomever it wants. So for example, France made Snapchat billionaire Evan Spiegel a citizen because of his great economic contributions. But what we're talking about here in terms of citizenship by investment programs are kind of off-the-racked products that anyone who ticks the right boxes and has the money can apply for. You know, there's basically a formal application process. You show tax statements, police checks, and the like. Um, and if you're approved, you become a citizen usually about three, three months to about a year. And in many cases, without even visiting the country. And many people naturalizing through these programs don't even, you know, do it if they have to. They, they try to avoid it if anything. So basically, in 2015, I set off to explore this world, the world of um, citizenship by investment, golden passports. I ended up traveling all over and making very good use of my own quite privileged at that time um, passport. And what I did, and I kind of trace this all out in the book, and what I discovered in going around is that how these programs came out of a much murkier scene of passport sales in the 80s and 90s that was really centered around Hong Kong. And I looked at how these formalized, transformed into really sort of formalized programs that offered a product with some longevity, one with a future, one that you just didn't have sovereign default and canceling all the passports. And this was done by solving a lot of issues around trust. But it also included interesting intersections between public actors and private actors as well in developing formalized, marketable programs. But once I got this workable model in place, more and more countries started getting on board. And in the book, I trace how this spread. You know, this, the growth of this standardized, formalized offering over the past decade. Now there's about 10 countries running very active programs that approve at least a few hundred, if even a few thousand, people each year. It's basically five in the Eastern Caribbean, along with Malta, Vanuatu, Turkey. These are really the main sort of offerings. Globally, though, there's about 22 countries with legal provisions that enable these sorts of schemes, but they're not all 
running out of programs. And I cover that in the book too, because these you know, sort of failed cases, cases that crash, so the tiny little cases that do just one person, you know, people who even know this field don't really even think about, they help illuminate what makes for an active golden passport program, what defines the core of this really fascinating market. Now globally, you know, in terms of size, there's about now about 50,000 people who naturalize through these programs every year. And that gets, that's the main applicant plus their family members as well. And what they're getting is obviously citizenship. But it's not how we usually think about citizenship. It's full citizenship, of course, but they're looking for something else. Now, because we often think about citizenship as fundamentally a relationship between a you know, state and its members, between a sovereign and subjects. It's about the rights that people get within a country. But the value of citizenship by investment, these sorts of golden passports, lies very importantly in the benefits that citizenship gets a person outside a country, in other places. No, because citizenship too is a sticky status. It follows you wherever you go all around the world. So what are those extraterritorial benefits, those ones outside the country? It can be things like visa-free travel, it can be lower import taxes, it can be the right to reside and work, set up a business in other countries, and that's what people are searching out. And these things, interestingly, are secured then through treaties and associations that are set up between the country and foreign powers, which then gives foreign powers, interestingly, a lot of influence over the value of a country's citizenship because of these external benefits. Now this means that in looking at this field, as I discovered, there's a really fascinating geopolitics to the scene, which I lay bare in the book. Now the EU very recently, especially if you've been following this in the papers, has been making a lot of noise about the programs, a lot of moves about them as well. But as I write in the book, the US is really much more interesting to watch and really a much more powerful player. And you know, I should also add, I finished the manuscript about a year and a half ago. Academic publishing is very, very slow. And there have been a lot of changes in the space as well. But fortunately, they've all been pretty much in line with what I was writing out, which was um, very much relief. But what's interesting is powerful players like the US can determine the citizenship policies of other countries. And it's quite successful at that too. It can take its foreign policy and impose it on how other places decide to naturalize members whom they can and cannot let into their nation as a part of that too. Now part of that's possible as well because traditionally countries with active golden passport programs have been microstates. That is countries with populations of less than one million and sometimes even less than 100,000 people. Now, take all of your assumptions about countries for a moment. Think about what it means to run a country with 100,000, 50,000, 200,000 people with a very limited resource base. You have to have schools, utilities, infrastructure, while importing quite a lot as well. So for a country set that's very small, the economic possibilities of citizenship by investment are huge. And as I trace out in the book and looking at the economics of the program, I find that it's more than 10% of GDP in places like St. Kitts, Dominica, and Vanuatu. In fact, it can even be much higher as well. In Malta, for example, the Citizenship by Investment program was behind the, the country's first budget surplus in 20 years. And in several of these countries, citizenship becomes effectively the number one export. So in the book, 
I assess this economic impact as well. You know, during the research, I went to St. Kitts, Antigua, Malta, Cyprus, Montenegro, and Vanuatu, all countries with programs, to look at what was happening on the ground, seeing if they're delivering what they promised, and how that money is being directed, which can be beneficial or not so beneficial in terms of the country. And I look at what sort of issues can arise in terms of how the funds are moving about as well. And while I was there, I also tended to ask locals what they think about it. So I include that in the book as well. What I found very interesting in traveling all around was just the huge range of responses. They varied a lot from country to country. And often were based on party affiliation too. Now, thinking about the scene, as you might imagine, as I just was mentioning for these microstates, it's a very lucrative one as well. And there's a whole citizenship industry that's been built around it. It's very profitable. Um, and in the book, I also trace the sort of long, often subterranean supply chains that make the market possible in the first place, connecting supply and demand, the rule, big, long supply chains of intermediaries. So I went to places like Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Dubai, and Moscow following this trail. And most of this citizenship industry is unseen even to the people naturalizing through the programs. They might be facing an agent, they hand, them, hand over the documents, what they need to do, but that person might hand it over to another agent who helps assemble the file, who hands it off yet to somebody else, hands it off to another person who then finally submits it to the government. And of course, all these links in the chain are getting fees for that too, so it becomes expensive. Yet virtually everybody who's naturalizing through these programs goes down this path. They're paying more for it, but why did they do this? And I explain all that too, um, as well as some of the unexpected consequences of these very long supply chains, right? And this can raise a lot of questions too, like who's going for this? Like who would buy citizenship in a small microstate when they're not even interested in going to the beaches? And investigative journalists have done a very impressive job at uncovering some of the criminals or baddies who've gotten through these programs. But what I found really fascinating in my own fieldwork is that this was not the vast majority of what was going on. The, the reasons people go for these programs, you know, on the whole, in the main, are really, really quite mundane. But it might not be something you're always thinking about if you come from a place with a very privileged passport. So in the first instance, it was mobility, mobility in the present, visa-free travel. You know, this would be a reason for somebody like, say, a, a tech entrepreneur with a PhD from Pakistan, whom I met um, in the Middle East, who couldn't easily travel, which he needed to do for his job, because he was from Pakistan and had visa-free access to only 33 countries, and then had his passport and embassies all the time otherwise. Next reason people go for it is future mobility, uh, basically a plan B insurance policy. What's Xi Jinping going to do next? That sort of thing. And then there's some people who look at lifestyle options, a smaller thing, you know, doing it for the children, naturalizing Malta to access Swiss doctors, that sort of thing. And then finally, there's, there can be business opportunities, like you know, import taxes, banking issues, it can be a workaround for that. It can make it easier to do business internationally, depending on what nationality you hold. Or even interestingly, as I found, to be foreign at home. So, for example, a Vietnamese business person with firms in Vietnam might become foreign to make use of foreign direct investment benefits or even international arbitration courts, which we don't often think about. Sometimes foreigners actually have more rights than citizens. Uh, in thinking, looking at this kind of overall scene that I traced out in the book then, you know, when I started this fieldwork 10 years ago, what I noticed, you know, especially in the past couple of years, is how dramatically it's changed. 
you know, as I was, as I was saying, traditionally the top countries were small microstates, former British colonies. What country is the top purveyor of golden passports today? Anybody know? I know there's a couple of people in the audience who's familiar with the scene, so they definitely will. It's actually Turkey, which is about half of all global sales, which is really interesting. It doesn't even have visa-free access to the EU, but still it's better than a Syrian, Iraqi, Iranian, or Afghani passport, which shows that it's really a testament to these intersecting inequalities that structure the market. Plus, Turkey will still take applications from Russian citizens. And you know, even though the US has been pressuring a lot of countries about that, Turkey has not um, succumbed to that US pressure. And another interesting development has been where sales are going next. What is the new frontier market of sales? And that for me was also has been mind-blowing to watch. Right now, it's the US. When I first started looking at the scene, there were, you know, US citizens weren't into this. Demand was from the global south. You know, why would you need it if you have a passport that gets you to 85 countries? But in the past couple of years, this sort of hyper-politicization of the US has produced this growing set of Armageddon Americans. And these were all augmented by COVID-19, when you know, suddenly people didn't trust the government because of what, what it was doing or what it wasn't doing. They suddenly couldn't travel to Europe whenever they wanted. And they started going not just for plan B, but plan C, plan D, plan E. That's sort of the American um, side of it. You know, so there have been interesting transformations in this world as well, which I, which I trace out at the end. So closing out, what's the upshot of, of all of this? What can we learn? I mean, it is kind of a small world, but what I found in exploring it is that it's a really interesting site to sort of trace out much bigger issues around citizenship and equality and globalization that aren't limited to just this world of golden passports, but they become crystallized within it. They become very clearly visible within this world. Now, first off, we often think of citizenship as somehow about a way of ensuring equality among people. This is what T.H. Marshall, professor at, at the LSC, you know, wrote about you know, now 70 years ago or so. But citizenship by investment emphasizes that citizenship is fundamentally about inequalities, both within a country in terms of who can afford and who can't afford this, but also between them. Because not all citizenships are equal, which is why there's a market in the first place. And it's important because citizenship deeply impacts where we can go and what we can do. And people from wealthy countries have an easier time of it. And those from countries that aren't so wealthy face very high barriers. So but we see in watching this world that both countries and individuals are quite strategic around this. That there's a global economy of citizenship in which the rich, whether their countries are individuals, do what they can. And then leaving the small, basically, to look for alternatives. It also reminds us that citizenship isn't self-same with identity. And we see this in different cases, like the dreamers in the US, people who were brought to the US without papers as young children, they become adults and realize, oh my god, I don't, I'm not a legal US citizen, but I have the strong identity. There can be a disjuncture here very often. But for many people, there's a strong identity component to citizenship, right? That's the nation part of it. Now, social scientists like to call what most people call countries, they call them nation states, which sort of highlights those two sides that come together in this sort of contemporary political unit, right? You've got the state, which you know, rules in the name of a nation or the people, you know, but it's basically a country when they say that. But what's interesting in looking at citizenship by investment is that it slices that amalgam in half. People are interested in becoming members of the state, but not the nation. 
They seek legal belonging to the state. These programs are not about creating a great national diaspora. Nobody talks about it in those terms. What naturalizers are looking for is that legal penumbra of the state, which they take with them when they travel and do things globally. It's really about those extraterritorial legal privileges of belonging that matter, which we often don't think about. And then finally, with globalization, you know, we live in a globalized world where capital or money moves across borders with far, far greater ease than people. But this globalized world does not come with global citizenship. Instead, it's a status that fundamentally divides. It affects where we can go, how we're treated, what rights we have, not only at home, but across the planet. And so we're basically stuck with it as much as it is stuck to us. We take it with us wherever we go. So if you happen to have been born into a good one, you know, a good citizenship, good passport, be aware of what that means and check your passport privilege. Because this isn't going away anytime soon. As long as countries anchor global capitalism, they do for several reasons, citizenship will continue to anchor global mobility. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thanks so much, Christian, for that very lucid synopsis of your, of your book. Um, lots of issues, as you can see, come up about citizenship and nation state. Capitalism, uh, neoliberalism, political uh, developments to talk about. Um, Oliver's going to kick off with his reflections and thoughts. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, I think one of the things that I particularly liked about this book is how even-handed it is. Um, I've written about golden passports, uh, citizenship by investment, in a previous book, Moneyland. Um, and I, it took me a little while to come to the same conclusion you've come to about the fundamental unfairness of citizenship. Um, I'm British. Uh, I also, by an accident of history, am a Canadian. I've only been to Canada once, but um, only recently, long after I became a Canadian, just because my father happened to be born there. So for me, you know, I was playing citizenship on easy because, you know, if you're British and Canadian, you're really, really lucked out. But I was, while I was researching this, I had this totally fortuitous encounter in St. Kitts and Nevis with a Palestinian gentleman who had been born in Gaza Strip and then lived in Libya for a while. And then when Gaddafi came to power, he had to leave Libya, ended up in Dubai. And all the time, he's in this state of extreme precariousness because he never quite knew when being Palestinian would come and, you know, and bite him. And for him, being able to buy a golden passport to obtain St. Kitts and Nevis citizenship was transformational. It meant he, his life was suddenly secure simply because he had been able to spend, I think at the time it was $200,000 on a Ketishan passport. And talking to him really put the whole system into perspective for me. I mean, there is a really interesting, though, point about the book is that, I mean, I wrote, I wrote mainly in my book about St. Kitts and Nevis because it was one of the, you know, the prime movers in this space. But what's really interesting is how you show that this happens again and again and again, that, that there is a fundamental demand from the wealthy citizens of relatively poor countries or countries which are sort of unlucky in the passport lottery. They're not always poor. Russia, as example, is a wealthy country, but it has a, you know, a relatively bad passport. And this strong demand from anyone with money but a bad passport to obtain a better passport. And, and you know, if it's not going to be done in a 
formalized way as is done in St. Kitts and Nevis or Grenada or Antigua, uh, Malta or so on, then it's done in an informal way. Um, there is a, you know, a, a real, you know, almost any time you talk to someone who's involved in one of the big citizenship by investment companies, they will, they, and you're a journalist, they will say, why aren't you writing about the fact that Romania sells passports in an industrial scale because essentially they will forge passports but forge documents showing your grandparents came from Romania and then they will allow you to buy a citizenship by pretending that your ancestors were from Romania. Supposedly Poland does the same thing. Uh, a number, I mean, Italy is also accused of doing it, whether they do or don't, I don't know. Um, but there is a, always going to be an informal route. And, and what's interesting about that is that really makes this part of the offshore financial system because if there isn't a legal way for wealthy people to get their way, then there is almost invariably an illegal way for them to get their way. And because because of this sort of pent-up demand, then a country somewhere <clears throat> will normally sell it to them, which is why the prime movers tend to be small, poor countries who see the opportunity and move. And then gradually, once they've placed the trail, larger countries do it. So it was St. Kitts and Nevis and Dominica, and then it became Malta and Cyprus, and now it's Turkey. And who knows who will do it next, right? I mean, you think if, you know, logically, it would then become a major European country. And once they start selling citizenship, then presumably everyone will be at it. Um, but one point I really wanted to highlight, and I don't know whether you want to come back on this, is, is the research process involved. I mean, you went to more than a dozen countries. Um, Citizenship by investment, particularly in the smaller places like St. Kitts and Nevis, Vanuatu, has this really unholy combination of dysfunctional bureaucracy and, you know, often friendly but amazingly impenetrable archives. You know, boxes in front of boxes in front of boxes and then the, the documents you need. It's not that you're not allowed to read them, it's just that you physically can't get at them because there's nowhere to put the boxes that are in the way of the boxes. It's extraordinary. Um, that combined with the citizenship by investment companies, which are essentially asset managers and therefore have commercial confidentiality. So you have this, this combination of extreme government bureaucracy and extreme commercial secrecy, which makes researching this, you know, it's, it can be funny. I mean, I found researching it funny, but then I'm a journalist, so you can, you're allowed to be, you know, you're allowed to make a joke when perhaps an academic has to actually get to the bottom of things and not just throw out a joke. So, so I don't, I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about the research process because I'm really impressed by the shoe level you put into this. Yeah, thanks very much. I must admit, I did benefit a little bit from your research process in St. Kitts because you... Process. Yeah, yeah, after, after realizing that the boxes behind boxes behind boxes were all wet and molded and you couldn't even read any of the documents, but they could really be found in an old all-apart shop down the street. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, which was very helpful. Thanks for that tip. Yeah, you're um, But yeah, it is true. It's not always straightforward. I often relied on the... The kindness of not, no, not strangers, but I suppose the kindness of people who were willing to explain what was going on. And, you know, it depended, depended place to place, it depended on introductions. But, you know, for example, when I went to Vanuatu, I had a wonderful person who just introduced me to everybody. And, you know, when she couldn't get, you know, whatever, this minister, that minister on the phone, she would say, yeah, but don't worry, I know what hotel he goes to in the afternoon. We'll just hang out there at 3 p.m. and he'll come by and we'll be fine, whatever. And she would do the introduction and I could do the you know, interview and it kind of worked that way. There's a lot of informality in terms of this. But it was really, you know, I think I was very fortunate with that. And then I suppose also one of the tricky things, and I, I only got 20 of these because they're very hard to find, people to talk about their stories, their naturalization stories. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is, you know, if you're a Chinese or Indian, you're not allowed to have dual citizenship, so there's a lot of concerns 
about that as well. You know, wealthy people tend to be very sort of risk averse and very privacy oriented too. You know, there was one interview I did with a service provider, had um, a client who was willing to talk with me, but we did it over his phone. You know, so I didn't know how to contact the person afterwards, and have, you know, and it was in Chinese, so we also did it through translation. So, but I found what was interesting: if you go to a hub like Dubai, um, Hong Kong, it used to be Shanghai, there's big citizenship conferences where people go shopping to look for options. So I would often hang out at those and ask people, you know, if you're looking for options, how are you evaluating them? Have you have you done this before? So it was uh, really interesting to hear how people opened up. Great. Shall we bring Thomas into the conversation? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Good evening. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Kristin. Um, I'm still unsure as to how I made it on this panel <laughs> with this um, group of accomplished academics and uh, published authors, but um, try to add to the discussion as much as I can. And so as I look out into the audience, I see a diverse group of people, and it suggests to me that there may be some diversity too in terms of the privilege or the disadvantage um, given to you, to us, at birth, in terms of our passport and our ability to travel without having to go through various uh, visa processes. And so I'm hoping that that leads to a lively uh, interactive discussion um, at the end of our discussion here. Um, but as a practitioner in this industry for the last decade, I think it, for me it comes down to one thing as I look at these applications that come before me. And it really is about families wanting to provide some security for their families. Uh, so for example, some of us may have a passport that gets us to 190 countries. 185 countries without having to go through the visa process. But some of us may have a passport which only allows us to get to 50 countries. And that is simply because of the accident of the, the place of our birth. And so for citizenship by investment, if we put aside the host countries for a minute, for the people who apply for these programs, it really is about being able to choose your nationality, being able to travel globally more freely than you're allowed to because of this passport that you were branded with at your birth. There's a misconception that there are criminals who apply for these programs. And in my experience, that happens very rarely. And that happens because as we assess individuals for these programs, we look at their history going back 10 years. So all the places they've lived for the last 10 years, for more than six months, police records. Uh, we look at their banking history as well, as we make determination about whether or not they can be granted citizenship. So it's a really robust background check that happens. And if you're a criminal, you don't want to expose yourself to that kind of investigation. And this is not just about desk, desktop research. There's a human investigation element which takes place on the ground in all of those countries that you would have lived in in the last six months. And so 
Over the last six months, I've looked at about 1,000 applications. And 99% of those applications are really about families, as I said, wanting to give uh, their children some security, perhaps the opportunity to be educated in the West, the opportunity to live and work in a Western country. There are countries where the girls are told that they can't get an education. And so some families decide that they do not agree with that and they want their girls to be able to get an education. And so they are afforded that opportunity by getting one of these passports. But to come directly to the book, um, Christian, what I liked um, most about the book from a practitioner's perspective is that you spend some time around the human element, uh, talking about why people apply for these programs. And I think that is missing from many books I've seen um, in the past. And for me, uh, the question I have is, I know that as you approach this research as a sociologist, you would have looked at it from an observer's perspective. But in terms of Kristen, the person, did you have any preconceived notions as you went into the research? And if yes, would you like to share some of those and perhaps talk to us about how those have changed, if they have changed? Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting question because one of the things that I think is very important when a person is doing field work and interview-based work, qualitative work, is that, or probably just in general with any kind of social science, is that you might have an idea before you go into the field of what's going on, but that the real world should be able to push back on you and tell you that you're wrong. And you can learn from that and then develop a better kind of account of what's going on. And so, so I do think it, it is such a relevant question. What were my you know, preconceptions that were challenged by this? And I suppose one of them was just the diversity of local opinion on this, what people thought. That especially in St. Kitts, there's a real kind of nationalism around it. I found very people who are, you know, I, very often people would say, you know, they, they were either supporting the party in power, they were great, the previous party was terrible, the previous party was fantastic, current party in power is absolutely terrible. But, it, you know, that's what they would argue about. But if you asked about, you, you know, citizenship for sale, it'd be like, yeah, what else can we do? And we'd get that in a lot of places. In a place like um, Vanuatu, I would ask locals what they thought about it, and they would be like, what? You, somebody wants to buy Vanuatu citizenship? We just want to get out of here. How do I get, how do I, yeah, will you marry me? You know, would be the sort of answers I would get there. Um, you know, so that, that real diversity I found very important. So well as diversity among people, among the motives of people. So the vast majority is, is mobility in the present or the future, visa-free access. But then you get these really interesting smaller bits, you know, like the Venezuelan oil workers in the GCC who need a work visa to continue to work there, they're oil engineers, but you have to park that visa in a passport. And the Venezuelan government isn't renewing passports and making it very hard to get new ones. So they would get citizenship so they have a passport. To put, you know, so there's a lot of little interesting intricacies. I had no idea um, was going to be there. Um, and I hadn't expected the US, the role of the US. I suppose I should have, but yeah, that was kind of surprising. Thank you. Um, Jason, do you want to talk to Great, thanks very much. And good evening, everyone. And first off, and most importantly, congratulations, Kristen, on this fantastic book. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's just over two months till Christmas, so for that special someone in your life, if you can't afford petition citizenship, you can afford this wonderful book. But no more joking because I'm an academic, so I had some serious questions for uh, Kristen. Uh, it really starts off where, related to Thomas's question, where you left off as well. I think, and people in the audience can maybe correct me later on if I'm wrong about this, that when first introduced to the idea of uh, citizenship by investment or citizenship for sale, that most people's reaction would be perhaps similar to what Oliver sketched out of, hang on, this is somehow wrong, uh, that there are certain things that should not be for sale. Money supposedly you can't buy you love, uh, you can't buy people, uh, and you shouldn't be able to buy citizenship. And I was just wondering about the kind of the, the most and the least also this idea perhaps a, a little more developed in the sense that, um, and you talk about Marshall obviously in the book and just briefly in the remarks here, this idea of citizenship as an equaliser between rich and poor uh, in a world that at least, or at least in societies that in some sense may be getting more inegalitarian uh, about the kind of the moral consequences of this and the extent to which it, you know, breaks down or undermines um, this idea of citizenship as an equaliser um, versus the ideas that I think Thomas and Oliver have put forward of, you know, this accidental birthright of, you know, I'm Australian and fake British, both of which are pretty handy passports. Uh, and obviously this is just, you know, pure luck, uh, nothing to do with merit or moral desert. The second one would be, in some sense, this is a story about money, most obviously, citizenship for sale, citizenship by investment. But I was also really interested in how the book brought out racial dynamics as well, um, and particularly how, in some sense, the people of European ancestry, it, it maybe gets a, a little way towards what Oliver was talking about too. You know, if you have any vague ancestry from Ireland or from Italy or from Spain or from Hungary, um, or perhaps from Romania as well, um, that you don't need to buy citizenship, or at least you have other options. Um, first off, because those countries have citizenship privilege. Uh, secondly, because they do have these very generous and ostensibly not monetarized, although maybe under the desk it is, um, access there. Um, and maybe the last one would be, you mentioned the sense of relief once you've finished a book. Uh, and I can understand that after having mounted a series of unprovoked attacks on the reading public myself, but there is this danger that, of course, all the people you've been speaking to can tell what you really think about them, or at least what you say about them. Um, and sometimes there's the problem of a self-terminating research program. Uh, and we both know Brooke Harrington's excellent work on the private wealth planning industry uh, which is a great book, and she is comprehensively off their Christmas list for that industry, and they will never speak to her again. Uh, you've obviously, I mean, I'm just interested in both how you're writing, but even more so once it's published, about the degree of blowback, the reaction, um, the extent to which you're still on speaking terms or not, or rather the industry's on speaking terms with you or not. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. I, actually, I was just in... Um, Kuala Lumpur doing some field work. And I always introduce myself, I'm a professor who works in this area, blah, blah, blah. And a lawyer came up and he said, do you know Brooke Harrington? <laughs> you know, she's off our Christmas list. You know, is that the kind of stuff you're doing? 
because you know, in general, what I, I try to go without a preconceived political program behind it and understand the different points of view and unpack the world um, in that way. So, so thinking about what this means in, in the number of very important points you, you brought up, um, I hope it's not self-terminating research program. I hope that I was able to bring enough balance and bring in the multiple perspectives that enable me to continue to talk with people. But hey, if not, then that's the way it is. Because I think one of the important things with research, too, is that you're faithful to the subject and faithful to the questions. And that doesn't determine how you write or the outcomes you come up with or one comes up with. But that also meant that in terms of this question of the, the moral implications or the moral consequences of this, um, yeah, I, I suppose in some ways I was reacting to a lot of um, political philosophy that was arguing about should citizenship be commodified or not, which was just a question I wasn't interested in as a sociologist. There were other people doing those debates. I wanted to understand how the world worked. And, but it does bring up the, and I think maybe I was interested in that too because I've got a very weak sense of American identity in all of this, you know, so um, maybe I, I always wanted to leave the U.S. I'm now, a, you know, a U.S. citizen along with being fake British as well, but, um, you know, I don't, it's not, for me, it's not a strong identity, which may, may be an unquestioned assumption in the background. But still this question of the politics of redistribution in terms of, you know, if, if the nation is supposed to be a sort of a, you know, it's a certain sort of we that enables things like, say, tax to shift resources, you know, and create more equality in some sort of way. I suppose one of the things, you know, I kind of struggle with in thinking about that is how that intersects with empire as well. I mean, if you think about the politics of empire here from the UK, you know, the way that taxation worked under the British Empire was that the colonies paid taxes that went to the metropole, but those tax monies were not redistributed really back to the colonies. So it's one of those things, this, these questions of redistribution I think are also very much cross-border in important ways that kind of get occluded if we're just thinking about these worlds of nation states and citizenship, and those are important units. They're, they're inescapable units in a lot of ways, importantly also because they define jurisdiction. But yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really complex subject, maybe the next book. Uh, um, <laughs> And, and what you bring up about the racial dynamics, too, is also very important. And it also speaks to the way, it, you know, is that people go for these options when they don't have other ones. And people go for ancestry when they can, especially in wealthy Western countries, because it's a lot cheaper and easier, but it's only people from certain parts of the world with a certain skin complexion who happen to have that lucky family tree. But it also talks about the way that people are strategic, especially when you don't have a privileged passport, but even when you do. People and countries are strategic around this. Countries are strategic in terms of embracing populations abroad. Think of, say, for, for example, India doesn't allow dual citizenship, but it does try to embrace its nationals abroad in order to collect more remittances by extending certain forms of nationality. People are strategic around citizenship as well um, in terms of multiplying their possibilities. Do you want to come back here? Yeah. Oh, it was interesting what you're saying about empire, because I think, I mean, it's easy being in Britain and seeing things keep going back to the British Empire, but I think in this case they really do, which is, there's a really interesting parallel between the research you've done and uh, the research of, say, someone like Nick Shackson or Roman Pallon into the birth of offshore finance, because a lot of the birth of the offshore structures in Jersey, Guernsey, uh, also in Switzerland and so on, it was caused by, by colonists from French and British colonies in particular, who had what's euphemistically referred to as low tax morale, 
Um, so they didn't want to pay tax because they didn't, weren't used to paying tax because they were white and white people didn't have to pay tax. And suddenly they found themselves living in, in Kenya, which they had to call Kenya, um, shock, instead of Kenya or Tanzania, and having to pay tax like an ordinary person. So they found these tools available to them in normally remaining British colonies that allowed them to keep their money out of the reach of the home government as well as the British government, which at the time had quite high tax as well. Um, and what's really interesting in your book is the crucial role of the, the end of, or the impending end of British rule in Hong Kong. Because suddenly there is a, a community in Hong Kong, although they didn't have full British citizenship, they had a former British citizenship facing the prospect of suddenly being Chinese, which, you know, not that long after the Cultural Revolution is a, is a very alarming thing to be faced with becoming. So this sudden demand for anything which wasn't Chinese. And that didn't only give birth to the golden passport industry, but often a lot of the golden visa industry, the Canadian visa industry, the, the US EB5 industry, the, the Australian one, these all were, were, were to attract wealthy Hong Kong Chinese people to, to bring their money to those economies. And fascinatingly, is also what gives birth to the BVI incorporation shell company business, because that was to allow that, that its real you know, seed capital was Hong Kong Chinese people trying to get their money out of the reach of the Chinese government as they were getting their citizenship out of the reach of the Chinese government. So, so much of this is about the end of empire and people who suddenly were faced with having to live like an ordinary person, looking for a way out and finding a way out because there was always someone willing to sell it to them. But again, and so I go on and on about empire because it fascinates me. But one of the things that's really interesting is, is almost a, a definition of being British in the heyday of the British Empire is that you didn't have a passport. Everyone else had passports. We didn't. You just turned up, I'm British. Oh, welcome. Yeah, because if you weren't allowed in, then if, the next would be a, a warship and then so on. You know, there's, there's a, a travel book about someone who famously travelled around the Middle East bearing only a, um, a bill from his tailor. And it had the royal crest on the top, and that was deemed sufficient to travel everywhere they wanted to, the joy of being British back in the day. Um, and it's so interesting that it was supposedly the empire that didn't do passports that then gives birth to monetizable passports. I think that also links in, and maybe, maybe Thomas knows this very well, actually, and I didn't speak to it too, in the way that... Britain decolonized, which was to give, especially, you know, decolonization usually started off with bigger um, colonies and, you know, kind of getting independence. And by the 1970s, you know, they, they get smaller and smaller over time. By the 1970s, it's really smaller microstates that are getting independence. And in the case of Britain, Britain cuts them off, go off, fend on your own, whereas France and the Netherlands keep them as dependencies, which, you know, for these places, it's a little bit easier because it's like you've got a guaranteed revenue stream from the government and it's not that costly for them. But if you're an independent country, you know, with a very small population, what do you do? Though we still have dependencies too, those look after the money while the other ones sell the passports. So yeah. you know, we've, we've also, we've, we've covered that base. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's still, you know, it becomes part of this complex offshore rule, but you can't have citizenship for sale unless you have full independence, which is why they're all former British colonies doing this. And it's interesting the way that decolonization brings in both a lot of issues around demand that you're describing, but also helps produce supply, too. Yeah, so um, that's a really touchy subject for me, as you can imagine, the, the talk around reparations and all of that. But really, these microstates, as you, you put it, former British colonies, we were merely pushed into independence because we were no longer useful from a monetary perspective. So there was no sugar, there was no other product. Slavery had ended, and um, we became a financial burden, did we not? 
And so by the 70s and then into the early 80s, it was about uh, how do we end this dependence? And so there was this push for independence. And as these countries not having very much, by the way, of natural resources, try to create economic activity for their citizens, many of the industries that we've tried in the past have been essentially killed off by the same uh, former colonizer. And so, for example, we had offshore banking, and that was deemed high risk. We had offshore gaming. That, too, was deemed high risk. Uh, we had agriculture. In the, in the case of sugarcane, too small to be globally competitive. We had banana, a privileged position. That was challenged and ended. And so is it that we are, it, it is the intention is that we have a single industry economy in the case of tourism so that our lives are dependent on the women fancy of people to travel to paradise for a week or two. And so the question for me becomes, what then? What do we do as small island states without any real natural resources beyond our beaches and our people to ensure that we can provide uh, education, we can provide for the healthcare of the individuals within the nation. Um, it's not so much that we want to sell citizenship, really. It's the what then? If not citizenship, what, what do you do? The Hong Kong piece was really important for me um, as a practitioner for 10 years, as, as I've said before. I didn't know the details about how it all started in Hong Kong, and so the book brought it home for me. But I'd like you to maybe spend a minute also just talking about that. Oh, gosh, yeah. Hong Kong. I mean, I wish they would have been there during that time. Instead, I just went to Hong Kong a lot when I was doing field work. But what I found really interesting, I mean, you could read the newspapers, but there was even a magazine called The Emigrant published in Chinese and in English, that just covered this whole thing of people looking to go abroad. And or even doing field work in Hong Kong, I found it very, very interesting because people would just talk about, it was so normalized. You know, in the West, there is this sort of thing like, oh yeah, it's kind of dodgy prostituting yourself. And in Hong Kong, it's like, oh yeah, look, there's this, there's this, there's this, my uncle did this, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was really just straightforward conversation in general. Uh, no, the only other thing I would say is just, again, to pick up on uh, the point about Hong Kong. I think it's important to realize that probably this is on a continuum. So it's not that there are certain countries that sell citizenship by investment and others that are entirely non-monetary in their immigration scheme. Britain, up until recently, sold these golden visas, and unlike in Grenada and Antigua, Britain did zero due diligence on the people buying these visas, because the government thought the banks were doing it, and the banks thought the government was doing it. So no one did it. So thousands and thousands of visas were sold, and it was only a few years later that they realized, oh, whoops. Um, so again, Australia, Canada, Britain in a slightly strange way, the United States, and now in a different way, a lot of continental European countries. So again, it's important not to think that only far-flung tropical islands have this monetary logic to their ideas of citizenship and so on. 
Um, this is, you know, very close and in fact, not just close to a place we live, but in the place we live too. And, and that's a good point in that, um, yes, residency is the first part of that process, but it leads to citizenship eventually. And, and also, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the very high-minded sounding schemes, for example, Portugal has a scheme to provide citizenship to the descendants of Jews that were expelled in 1492, which is a very high-minded and very long overdue reparation, but only quite wealthy people can prove they are descended from people who left Portugal in 1492. That isn't easy to collect that kind of documentation. It is noticeable that the most famous recipient of citizenship under that scheme is Roman Abramovich, who used to own Chelsea Football Club. So, you know, it is a an onerous process collecting that kind of documentation. Yeah, citizenship and migration policy in general is very often economic at base. You know, if you think about just, you know, visa programs or whatever, you know, it's number one, are you from a rich country? Number two, do you have skills that another country wants so that we'll give you a visa? And then, then you look for alternatives. And one of the things I found very funny when I was, you know, you brought up Romania before. I remember when I was doing interviews in Moscow in, I think, 2017 or 2018, and um, I was talking to a service provider there who said, yeah, you know, the problem is, the, you know, the Romanians, all you need to do is buy some fake documents to show you have a Romanian ancestor and they make you a citizen. It's cutting into my business. And so he went down to the Romanian embassy and was like, do you know this is going on? And they were like, yep. <laughs> Doing okay off of it. <laughs> I think we should throw it out to the audience. But before, I, before we do that, can I just ask a question? Because I've been struck by uh, the reference to T.H. Marshall, you know, and um, one of the issues you discuss in the book quite a lot is just how significant is the phenomenon? Because let's not overestimate just how many there is. There's a lot in Grenada, but really it's, it's a small phenomenon. You put out Turkey, for instance, it's not really dented GDP. But I want to just put the idea that um, the T.H. Marshall, famously, he writes his book on citizenship and social class at the time of the welfare state being introduced by Labour government, and for him, Citizenship is about having welfare rights, it's about having social welfare rights, health service rights, housing, education. <coughs> and what I've struck by reading a book is in a way that this kind of citizenship is completely, it's got nothing to do with well-being, welfare, it's about an economic investment. But it did make me think, and this goes back to things Thomas was saying, do any of these people buying citizenship care about using any of the services or is all, do they expect to use private schools for their kids, private health care for their you know, health needs um, or whatever. Is something interesting in engaging with the public infrastructure? On yeah, for, for the most part, especially with the microstates, people aren't interested in going. Yeah. Um, and they might think of it now, especially post-COVID, as potentially an escape pad. Mm. Or some, of, some people working in Dubai think of it as a place to retire, because if you work in the United Arab Emirates, it's you know, probably not going to become a citizen. Turkey is probably the exception where you do have a number of people who are living in based and some, somehow connected to Turkey, in which case access to public infrastructure can be a draw. But I find that I've also done research on um, golden visas, residence by investment, and there it tends to be a little bit more of a draw, mm. for sure. Mm. Um, it's a slightly different configuration. People want, you know, are thinking more medium-term, long-term residence in, in some of those places. I'd say there's a, in, in the literature about this, there's an outsized role played to kind of Bitcoin bros, because they're sort of some of the few people who buy passports who are willing to talk about it. And they do actually live in St. Kitts and Nevis because they hate the Americans because America's like Big Brother and whatnot. And, and there's a sort of weird libertarian aspect to 
doing Bitcoin in St. Kitts and Nevis. So you would think that they were like 90% of the market, judging by what's written about, but it's like three people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, if, if that actually might just be two. Yeah, the, the majority is just really interested in the mobility that the password gives them. Great, so I think we should throw it out to the audience now, so please put up your hand. I think there's a roving mic somewhere, OBS over here, so in the front here. So we'll do two or three questions at a go, and then give the entire panel a chance to answer. Well, can I just say thank you to everybody? I thought it was going to be interesting. It's even more interesting than I thought it would. Hmm. I'm looking at citizenship from a different perspective. Um, I'll just throw in £10 poems. I'm looking at people, citizenship. And a number of my friends have very recently suddenly become very Irish when we broke out of the... I came here because I thought I was going to be part of Europe. That's been a big shock to me. So that's one thing. But the other thing, which hasn't really been mentioned, is all of those people who came after the war. I say Windrush because that's a portmanteau word that we use, and I happen to live in an area which is heavily heritage Windrush. And I've found, and I've also been involved with people who dealt with their citizenship back in 68, when suddenly a load of people who'd come from the Caribbean found that they didn't have citizenship, which they assumed they had. I won't go into the whole story. If you know it, it's appalling. Um, there hasn't been the compensation. There hasn't been the recognition. And I know you're talking about investment citizenship, but this is, if you like, the other side of the coin. So that's the note I'd like to, to raise. Thank you. We'll get a couple more questions. Um, yes, you're in the... Hi. Um, everybody's been uh, broadly very positive about the, the golden passports. Um, I'm a chartered accountant and I used to have a good mate who worked in the BBI as a partner for one of the accounting firms over there. And money laundering and tax avoidance is huge in our chartered accounting profession. I'd appreciate comment. I can't help but wonder, even though it sounds wonderful and you do lots of background checks, whether it's, a, I'd like your comment on whether it's a gateway that once people have um, citizenship of one of these offshore places, that then they can use it to park billions from Russia or wherever. And so it's contributing to that mon hiding money around the world that we are really struggling with at the moment. Thank you. Is there a question at the back? Yeah, you got your hand the highest. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, thank you for all of your sharing. So I have two questions for uh, Christine, and the first one is about the research method. So I'm curious about how do you like find the people from countries like China or India and make them like willing to take the risk of sharing their stories to you? And the second question is about uh, what do you think about the relationship between Hong Kong people's attitude of the BNO passport uh, and their formal colonial identities? So that's my question. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So I think we've got some questions there. And Christy can start, but if anyone else wants to chip in, that's fine too. Yeah, I'll make a few comments and then also allow others to bring in their perspectives, which I think can be quite interesting. As well. Thinking about um, Brexit, I was also disappointed because I naturalized in the UK after it had left the EU. And, um, yeah, so I got a greatly diminished in value passport as a result. But thinking about the case of Windrush, which is a really important one, it's one that I include in my classes, it also highlights the key role of documents in all of this. I mean, the vast majority of the world is supposed to be a citizen of some sort of country. But a lot of people don't, you know, it's more and more so, but don't always have the documents to show it. Those are absolutely fundamental. And what was really heinous in the case of the UK is that they started demanding that people show documents that the US, British government had destroyed. So it was impossible for them to do it in the first place. 
So it highlights a lot of issues around citizenship, decolonization, role of documents and identity, and what, what's, what's going on with all of this, and I think in really um, important ways. And also thinking about the fieldwork question, too, about um, China and India, people sharing their stories. What I found very interesting, number one, if you're in Dubai, it's a lot easier, because you're not under the, the nose of Beijing or the nose of Delhi. You know, people have different sort of orientations, they're, they're easier to talk. Also, south of China, I found very different from the north of China in terms of people's ease of talk. And, you know, I would go to these, you know, invest in real estate abroad, get passports, get visas, kind of fairs where people would wander around, and especially the ones in China, they were huge, and most people were potential buyers. And so, you know, I clearly was not with Beijing, and people were actually pretty straightforward um, in a lot of cases with me at, at those events. And I was kind of surprised. I was like, but no, they, they were still willing to talk. I don't know if people had other thoughts, especially on like um, BVI. So a couple, I mean, a couple of points on the point of being positive about the programs. I very much echo what, what Thomas was saying. I, I really don't blame St. Kitts and Nevis or Dominica, Grenada, Antigua, um, St. Lucia for, for selling or citizenship. Um, these places, as, as Thomas was laying out, have been really left in the lurch. They, they were treated, kicked out the door of the, of the British Empire. So there you go, good luck being independent, and then lost their various trading privileges when the, you know, the UK joined the EU. And it, it's been really tough, um, you know, particularly when the sugar tariffs ended for St. Kitts and Nevis, it was very reliant on sugar. When the sugar industry went bust almost overnight, and it, and it was, had to do something. So no, I mean, I don't, I would prefer a world where citizenship was not solved, but I certainly don't blame these countries for doing so. If there is a problem, and, and I think it's a problem that's in the post, and a, and partly it reflects the difficulty of investigating it, partly because journalists haven't caught up. Turkey is going to be a real problem. Turkey is, there is very little due diligence going on in terms of who Turkey is selling passports to. Um, and what has come out is alarming about North Korea and so on. I think that there's some of the stuff about what happens in Romania, perhaps Slovenia, Poland. You know, there's a lot of questionable practices going on there. Um, it's really interesting what you say about um, Irish citizens, southern Irish citizens, because the, uh, the people who are now... British people who have Irish grandparents, those Irish grandparents came here as economic migrants. And then now they have more privileges than British people do. And the same is true of, of uh, Italian citizens in Argentina. They moved to Argentina because Argentina was wealthy. And Italy at the time was very poor. Um, so it does reflect a you know, sort of interesting fluidity in which citizenships are privileged and which ones aren't. On the Windrush point, um, I mentioned that my father was Canadian. Um, he moved here as a six-month-old. He's never changed his passport. He's always been Canadian. And yet, mysteriously, he never had any trouble during the Windrush scandal, um, which is the amazing privilege of being white rather than black. Well, and then you seemed very about Sikuta, the mathematician. She's Canadian and she's white. Yeah. And they were about to withdraw her visa. She causes too much trouble. Just briefly on the, on the crime in British Virgin Islands aspect. I think, I mean, there have been some conspicuous screw-ups uh, in the sense, but I think it's less the idea of people buy citizenship and then go on a crime spree than the other way around. So people illicitly come by wealth uh, and then launder it, and then some of those people do come by second uh, citizenships. So there's a very big scandal in uh, Malaysia called the 1MDB scandal, uh, the former prime minister, and this other kind of arch-villain called Jolo, uh, who conspired in this improbably elaborate $5 billion scam, which involved 
financing the Wolf of Wall Street and all sorts of the film, obviously about financial crime, so it was about art imitates life. Anyway, Joe Lowe had a, had a petition passport as well. He bought one. So there have been some conspicuous failures. But I think across the board, I mean, good old-fashioned corruption gets you a long way in small countries and in big countries. So I think, you know, there's the, the legal route and the due diligence um, but I think exposés in a whole series of countries, some inside the EU, some outside, you know, there are the laws on the books, but if you can give enough money to the right people, which may not be that much, um, in fact, you can, you can work your way around them. So I, I think the kind of crimogenic thing, but as I say, it's, it's normally an, eff an effect of crime rather than a cause, I think. What I found also interesting, you know, a lot of people bring up the specter of tax evasion. Yeah. But to be honest, I mean, tax number one is massively, massively complicated. It's about you know, you know juggling multiple jurisdictions and all of that. But if it were a silver bullet to tax evasion, the numbers would be through the roof in terms of U.S. citizens and European citizens applying for these programs. But instead, there's so many different ways to evade or avoid taxes without this that it's kind of like you know why even bother? Um, you know, I can just set up a, a shit, you know a couple of shell companies. Use the South Dakota Trust. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly the point I was going to make. Um, becoming a citizen is not necessary to avoid tax. There are many structures that are available so to do. And then on the question of AML issues, uh, there are financial centers that are outside of the Caribbean that are the centers of AML issues. Uh, for example, Delaware has more IBCs than they do citizens. We know that Miami is a money laundering center. The evidence is that many banks have been fined and sanctioned. And um, London is not that clean either. Whoa. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there, there are many centers where that happens. One does not become a citizen to engage in AML, as was said earlier. Yeah, so, I mean, Jason mentioned Joe Lowe and his petition passport. He also has three very desirable properties just by green park tubes. So. Mm -hmm. Should we ask some more questions? Yeah, leave the blue uh, jacket there. Thanks very much. Um, I guess I have a question about sort of visa-free access that comes with um, much of citizenship by investment. So the US, Canada, the EU, destinations people want to travel, one of the motivators behind acquiring these passports. Over the past few years, there have been a few high-profile revocations of that access. Um, I think the EU and the US, for instance, with, I think, maybe Dominica, St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, is that revocation, do you think, fair? And if not, who's sort of to blame and where does accountability lie? Is it with the programs, the due diligence? Is it case by case? Or is it a, a sort of political issue that can be explained by the dynamics between, say, the US and, and the Caribbean? OK, any, any more questions? Yeah, uh, thank you to the panellists. I actually work for one of the due diligence companies that vet these applicants, Harrod Associates, and I'd like to hear more statistics, really, in terms of maybe the demographics of the applicants uh, before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and if you've got any future projections, which nationality or nationalities are more likely to apply for these citizenship by investment schemes before now and in the future. Thank you. Thank you. And one, one more. Yes, over here in the white um, jumper. Hi, thank you for the panelists. Um, places like the EU who've expressed a uh, slight disinterest or discouragement of CBI schemes, especially, of course, Malta getting into a bit of trouble with that regard. If for those countries to take issue with CBIs, 
is, would you say there's any scope for special non-recognition of CDI schemes? Of course, looking at Malta, if you don't want people coming into the EU at the rate that people can possibly through Malta, is there any scope or legal or diplomatic scope for not recognizing those types of citizenship? Thank you. Okay, some question. So the first one on visa-free access revocation, that's something that I've been, I found very, very interesting in watching this space. And it, it wasn't the US, None, I mean, only Malta has visa-free access to the US or um, the rest of the country, it was Canada probably that you're thinking about in terms of St. Kitts and Antigua. Um, and more recently, Dominica and Vanuatu have lost visa-free access to the UK. Vanuatu has also lost it for the European Union in general. In terms of stuff that I've been observing there, it can be a combination of factors, but the impression I get is often what's said in public is the reason may not be the real motive behind it, and that there can be a much more geo complex kind of geopolitical dance and maneuvering behind the scenes on all of those. That can be a different configuration for each of those as well. So. It's, I think it's an interesting space to watch, but there the geopolitics are, are very complex, and I think it's often not, you, you know, the, the sort of very brief statements that you get from governments about the reasons are maybe not the real reasons that they're doing that, which may have to do with other issues around security or, or you know, leverage and that, and that sort of stuff. In terms of the um, demographics of the applicants, you know, when I first started looking at the scene, people would say, number one place of demand is China, number two is Russia, number three is Middle East. By about 2018, 2019, people were saying China, Middle East, Russia. And then after COVID, and during COVID, China went way down because people couldn't leave. It wasn't their main priority. Quarantines were pretty tough, but it's supposedly going up very high. You know, Russia, invasion of Ukraine, huge numbers of Russians now interested. COVID also led to a boom in the, in the Middle East market, particularly because of people's very precarious legal status in you know, places like Dubai or Doha and all of that. So it shifted quite a bit. Um, which you probably know if you're working in this industry and coming looking at things. But also, also what's interesting what other people might not realize is that there's some streaming from for different countries. Like Saint Kitts has been traditionally, you know, very popular among Chinese because it recognizes Taiwan and not China. Cyprus has traditionally been very popular with Russians because that has been on the line during the Cold War. There was also a strong, strong Communist Party. A lot of lawyers spoke Russian. They were very early on in the Russian market. And um, Oliver, Oliver's written quite a lot about um, those sorts of connections as well. So you also see streaming into different countries depending on, on the markets too. Um, and then finally with, with the EU, it's more than just discouragement. The EU, mainly, and if you think about the EU, there's a bunch of different big bureaucratic apparatuses. It's the European Parliament and the European Commission. They don't just discourage it, they don't want to see it. And so they've been putting a lot of pressure on, on countries about this. But what I find really interesting in watching that space is um, ETIAS. So the European Union is rolling out a screening program so that it's no longer just having a passport from those countries that gets you in you know, easily, they're gonna have the final say because you'll have to apply um, for pre-screening, like what the US does already with ESTA. Um, and so they'll have final say in the first place, but they're still pressuring countries, um, threatening to revoke visa-free access. I think about two days ago, there was a new um, report released by um, the European Parliament um, on this again. But you also brought up the thing with Malta. You know, can you kind of have a tiered form of citizenship within the European Union? And what's interesting in the EU is that 
the European Union does not have legal jurisdiction over citizenship. It's a prerogative of member states. And so the legal basis for action by the union, and right now Malta's in court at the European Court of Justice, it'll probably take a couple of years to go through it. There's still, maybe they'll figure out some sort of argument around it, but since the um, Edinburgh Provisios was incorporated, I think, in the Lisbon Treaty um, as fundamental European law, it's not a competency of the EU, so they wouldn't be able to even discriminate by, you know, different types of citizenships in that sense. And also, as it relates to Malta, I mean, we're talking about 1,800 families in the first instance, and then I think the second iteration is 1,500 families, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. It's a really small number when you look at the, the overall number of individuals. Uh, for the similar situations, so generally for CBI countries, like Vanuatu, um, are you saying it's purely within the competency of the state, that there's no possibility of non, like a country, let's say Britain, not recognizing certain types of... Oh, that can happen in Vanuatu, but it's different for Malta okay. with the European Union in that sense. Right. I thought you were talking about that. Could, could that happen? Could, say, Britain say, we recognize you as Vanuatu, but not you? I mean, it's, they up, did to, that. it's up to Vanuatu they who's did a Vanuatu. They basically said that um, it was the European Union, that if you had a passport issued before, I think it was 2014 or 2015, we won't give you visa-free access. Right. Um, and the other way they could do that is um, by country of birth which is listed on passports. You know, you have to be born in that country in order for us to recognize you as visa-free. And because visa-free agreements are done through treaties, agreed to by these countries, they can do that at that level. And as it relates to the visa-free access, um, none of these countries have had visa-free access to the US. The well, in terms of the Caribbean countries, right you are. Doesn't, yes. doesn't Grenada have some amazing visa deal? There's an E2 treaty yeah. um, <laughs> where you can, it's an investor, Visa, yeah. right? Um, where you invest in a, an American-facing uh, company, and you can apply to get a visa, but it doesn't lead to citizenship. But there's there's an application process, right? Um, yes, there's visa-free access to the UK and to the EU, um, but is there a real risk or perceived risk? As it stands now, you get to the border, and the border agent has the ability to allow you in or to turn you around. When we come to March 2024, there will be the ETA for the UK, as well as ETIAS for Europe. Essentially, as, as um, Christine said, you will have to pre-register before you come to the country. And so the country has the option of denying you access at that point. So is the risk real or is it just a perceived risk? Okay, so we have one last round of questions. Um, I've actually got one on Zoom here on this iPad, um, which I'll just read out and we'll have a couple more. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll read out. It's from Thomas Samuel. I've got a question for Dr. Surak on the panel. From your research, um, how far are golden passports used for tax optimization? Uh, um, or is it not really very efficient? Uh, I'm missing the implication is not that it's not that important, but perhaps a few more things to say about that. Okay, uh, some last questions over there. Yeah, in the uh, yeah in the front here. Thank you. I think I'm a tax advisor, so I probably would ask some tax-related question. And I guess it's a bit broader than that, but I'm in because we're talking about millionaires and you know the most wealthiest um, range of people. How much do do they tax? Uh, you know, kind of like take into account the kind of the social image they would bring by changing nationality when they kind of select which golden passport scheme they would choose or which country they choose to re domicile 
um, I guess my experience is like there are people who are um, certainly concerned that like, if they moved to some certain tax haven countries and became like apparently, you know, that something might go wrong and that might impact their business well-being. Um, I mean, just like how much, like from your experiences, that has been taken into account. Back there, yeah. Thanks. Um, maybe to Thomas. I think we were all pretty touched by what you were saying about um, the comments on you know, Western nations, the EU, the UK, um, historical um, colonial ownership of the islands, and then subsequently limiting various commercial opportunities. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the EU talking more about specifically the CBI programs in the Caribbean and looking to potentially put further restrictions or further limitations. So I just wondered. From your perspective, how you see the, the longer-term sustainability of the programmes in the Caribbean, what sort of changes are being made, and maybe how the programmes are diverging or potentially going to divergence to see that Dominique has had been particularly singled out, and the extent to which there's going to be potential divergence, and you touched on the US. I wonder, you know, longer term, do you ever see US visa access or visa-free access coming back into to conversation again, or is that something which is not on the table? So. Thank you. Uh, any okay, yes, with the black cap here in the front? Hi, I'm just a student. I don't have any professional backgrounds, but I just have a question on the Hong Kong context. So I have a Hong Kong passport. My parents moved to Hong Kong before uh, it was handed over to the British. However, they didn't apply for the BNO. But I just have a question regarding the BNO because after the protest, the most recent protest in uh, 2019, the significance of holding a BNO passport became very important because people wanted to leave Hong Kong after you know the overarching you know power that you know China was imposing on Hong Kong. So the scheme that Britain did with Hong Kong regarding the BNO, kind of creating a pathway for Hong Kongers that have a BNO passport to gain British citizenship, is that an example of the golden passport? That's my question. Thank you. Okay. Well, any one last question? Um, or oh, good one. Yes. Yeah. Put that there. So thank you. Um, not being from a British background, I wanted to ask that. How would the Golden Passport um, affect global immigration policies and natural securities? And also, how would these programs differ from the traditional immigration and citizenship processes? That's what I want to ask. Thank you. So let's do a final round of the panel. I think Kristen should have the last word. So why don't we go around the panel first? Any, any final reflections as well as any comments on these questions? And then, and then Kristen can finish up. I mean, obviously, I think Kristen's probably answered most of those. On, on the point about EU criticism of Dominica or whatever, I think we can just call out the awe-inspiring hypocrisy of the EU in this, um, considering two of its member states have had very successful golden passport programs. Most of its member states have ongoing successful golden visa programs. The EU also has uh, a blacklist for tax havens uh, and regularly blacklists countries in the Caribbean, despite the fact that in Ireland and Luxembourg, among others, it has some of the world's most successful and powerful tax havens. So, you know, I kind of think that they should take an opportunity to shut up every now and then. Maybe. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, these things are just not that useful for tax evasion, tax avoidance or money laundering. Um, apart from the EU stirring up opposition, I mean, the EU is really mobilising other international organisations too, particularly the specialised one against money laundering called the Financial Action Task Force. Uh, and the OECD on tax, in that both of these organisations now really have 
citizenship by investment in their sites in a way that just makes no policy sense. And in, in some sense, I don't really get the EU opposition in the sense of, you know, if people in small boats come across the channel, that gets headlines and politicians worry about it. But this stuff doesn't even really get headlines. So I'm a bit mystified as to where the, the hostility is unmistakable. The hypocrisy is pungent. But I'm just not sure of the motivation, and maybe maybe Christian can speak to that. Thanks. And so is it the rise of nationalistic sentiments that politicians are pandering to, is the question that comes to mind for me as it relates to the EU's opposition to these programs. Is it also related to the flow of capital? So capital is now leaving some of the major cities into these smaller territories. And is that related to the opposition as well? As it relates to that question that was um, posed to me directly, these programs have been around in various different iterations, right? Since the Romans um, Christian, or maybe even further back. And so I think that they will continue to exist. What will likely happen is that we will have to adapt to the changing environment um, to keep the programs around. But I see them being sustainable and they'll be around for some time, I think, um, regardless of the opposition. And even with the ending of visa-free access to some of these major countries, I, I think that the programs will survive those. ETS, as I mentioned earlier, ETA, it means that everyone will have to pre-register before they enter the, the countries anyway, before they enter Europe and the UK. So I don't see these programs dying off, I just see them changing. You and Christine. Yeah, and so I'll just speak, speak briefly to two points. One is, one is this question, too, about how is this different to traditional immigration and citizenship? And I think there's also a lot of myths around it because oftentimes, especially in kind of the North Atlantic space, we think of, oh, yeah, if you naturalize, it's because you've moved to a country and then you spend time there and then you can eventually become a citizen. I mean, that's what I ended up doing here. But actually, that's not the most common way that people become citizens in different parts of the world. You know, Italy has naturalized something like two million people overseas at its embassies without any evidence, through those ancestry options without any evidence that people have moved those, to those countries. Hungary also tends to naturalize people outside of Hungary at a much higher rate. Live in, live in China all your life, you'll probably never become a citizen. Live in any of the Gulf states all your life, you'll probably never become a citizen. So this, this idea that there's this kind of immigrant into citizen trajectory is really, it's a limited space, um, but it tends to become hegemonic in, in terms of our imagination. And then thinking about that, because this is also an angle that the EU hates. It's like these people don't have a genuine connection of the country that they're becoming a citizen of. We also have already talked about loads of exceptions to that sort of rule in general happening in the EU all the time. My reading of the EU and all of this, the, you know, the key thing right now is um, European values are not for sale. And I'm kind of like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you know, it's so incoherent. I think it's just a, a topic that plays really well while the EU rolls out all sorts of other, unfortunately, fairly neoliberal policies in other sorts of domains. And one thing that they often, one of the big e arguments here in the EU, too, is like this kind of trade-off thing. You know, there's people dying in the Mediterranean because of illegal pushbacks by Frontex, while the rich can pay to get to the head of the line. You know, what about the refugees? And it's kind of like, well, to be honest, the country that's the number one host of refugees in the world right now, Turkey, 
about three to four million refugees right now, is also the number one seller of golden passports. And the reason why it has all those refugees is because it's being paid by the EU to keep them out of the European Union, which just kind of speaks to the more general thing about how migration, mobility, these sorts of policies are all in the end very often about economics and people are valued and evaluated very differently depending on where they fall on that spectrum. Great, thank you. I think we need to stop there. I should just say, I'm sure you, your appetite is being whetted. You can buy the book outside and Christian will sign it for you. I think there's also some drinks and the reception afterwards, so please stay and chat to any of the panel. It's been a great discussion, I asked everybody. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.